This evening we return to our series on the Ten Commandments, and we've been dealing with them through the lens of our church confessions. We believe that the ten words that are spoken by God at Sinai are a summary of God's moral law given in the Old Covenant, and we believe the moral law of God still stands today. Sometimes as Christians, when we think of God's law or we hear, a, we hear about the law of God, we only think of obscure dietary restrictions from the Old Testament. And we may think to ourselves, well, you know, haven't, haven't those all been done away with? Don't we live in the age of grace? And while this is certainly true, we must remember that God's moral law has not ceased Uh, that only the civil and the ceremonial law have passed away. And God's moral law instructs us how we are to live. The law of God is good and wise because uh, it teaches us to love the things that God loves. The moral law shows us what it means to be conformed into the image of Christ, as Paul writes. We look more like Jesus when we follow his footsteps. And there's a wonderful truth here, and it is this, that God's law as summarized for us in the Decalogue in the 10 words, God's law is not meant to be a killjoy. It's not meant to be a killjoy. No, God wants us to flourish and to enjoy him. And we experience the greatest joy in human flourishing when we live according to God's good design. You see, true freedom, true freedom in this life is found in living as slaves to Christ. True freedom in this life is found in living as a slave to Christ. And I want you to think about it this evening like this. You you have been justified if you are a believer. You have been declared righteous in the sight of God because of what Christ has done for you. But God doesn't leave you there. No, God promises that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God will continue to sanctify you throughout your brief pilgrimage here on earth. And there will be bumps in the road along the way, no doubt about it. You will fall and you will sin. But the grace of sanctification is is one of growth towards the image of the Son. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's it's an important work and we, we often overlook it within the church today. If you are born again, if you've experienced the new birth, the Holy Spirit will enable you to grow in holiness, to love God's law, to to delight in God's law, to follow God's law. Sanctification is a beautiful grace because God takes broken sinners, called in the Father, justified in the Son, and he displays his glory by making wretched people whole again by the power of his Spirit. There's a wonderful picture of sanctification that we find in Mark's gospel in Mark chapter eight. I love 
the way this illustrates for us a picture of our sanctification. Jesus heals a blind man and after Jesus spits on his, on his uh, hands and uh, puts them on his eyes, Jesus asks the man, he says, do you see anything? And the man replies, I, I see people, but they look like walking trees. And Jesus lays his hands on him again and the blind man finally sees clearly. And that's kind of a picture of our growth in holiness. Our sanctification isn't always uh, linear on the graph. We rely on the spirit and we seek to obey the law of God and we sometimes fall hard. Even though we've been saved, we can still see walking trees. We can still have on spiritual blinders. But as we abide in Christ, as we abide in him as branches of the true vine, we will bear good fruit. We will more and more look like Jesus as we obey God's law. And one day we will no longer see walking trees like that blind man, but we will see clearly. We will see God face to face. We will move from sanctification to glorification. We will no longer fall short of the glory of God and sin will be no more. So as we look together at our text this evening, as we examine the sixth word, uh, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will be at work in our hearts, making us more like Christ, giving us eyes to see in greater clarity as we go through our Christian life. So this evening we will seek to answer three questions. Firstly, what does God forbid in the sixth word? Secondly, what does God require in the sixth word? And thirdly, how does Christ fulfill it? So let's look at that first question. What is it that God forbids in the sixth word? Well, the basic answer is this. God forbids the unlawful taking of any life. God forbids the unlawful taking of any life. Now, in our ESV Bibles, we read... You shall not murder. And in the Hebrew, the word for murder uh, actually includes not just a premeditated murder, uh, but involuntary manslaughter or manslaughter by way of negligence. And that's noted for you in most English translations by way of footnote. Uh, But that's significant for our purposes because it underscores the Bible's view of human life. It underscores for us the Bible's view of human life. That life is precious, that that life is sacred. It's not just premeditated murder that God prohibits, but uh, it is unintentional, unintentional or negligent actions that lead to the death of another. And in the Bible, God gives a specific reason for this command. And it is because we bear his image. And it is because we bear his image that 
human life is precious. We find this very early on in the Bible, in Genesis chapter nine. We find a rationale uh, for this. We read this in Genesis chapter nine, verse six. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Listen to this. For God made man in his own image. Now this is, prof- this is a profound point we, we can't miss. God created mankind, male and female, as the crown of all creation in his image. We were created to rule over every living thing and to exercise dominion over the earth. We are the only living organism that bears the image of God. And as born again image bearers, we are temples of the living God. God's spirit dwells in our hearts. So any assault against another human being, any assault against an image bearer is by definition an attack against Almighty God. As one theologian puts it, because human beings are the temple of the living God, we cannot attack God's house. We, we confess that God is the author and the giver of life. And when we take human life unlawfully, we, we usurp God's authority as the one who gives and takes human life. John Calvin puts it quite, quite pointedly. He says this, he says, our neighbor bears the image of God to use him, abuse him, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself in every human soul. Now just pause for a moment and think about that. Right, disregard for human life is violence against God. When we harm ourselves or or we harm others, we attack our creator. We attack our creator. And it's interesting to note that each of the following commands after the sixth word are, are expanding on the prohibition of attacking God's image. Adultery, theft, false witness, covetousness, These are all an assault against image bearers. Now in the Bible we find that not all taking of human life is unlawful. For example, in Numbers 35 we read of capital punishment as lawful for certain crimes. We also find passages in the Old Covenant that Uh, particularly in Deuteronomy that permit the lawful taking of human life in the context of war. And this is what led St. Augustine to famously say that he who executes a just command does not kill. But the scriptures certainly acknowledge that even under lawful circumstances, the taking of human life is a grave matter. It's not something that we should have a flippant attitude towards. 
because human life is sacred. And as the Westminster Larger Catechism reminds us, we must, we, we must seek to preserve life at all lawful costs. Now, from the early days of the Christian church, uh, believers also understood that the, the sixth word applied from the womb to the tomb. They understood that human life at every stage of life is sacred. Yet there are some today who claim to follow Christ that would suggest that abortion and euthanasia are viable options for a believer. And of course, our society has believed this is perfectly acceptable for some time, but, but novel interpretations of the Bible have sought to twist the truth, and the father of lies has sought to deceive the bride of Christ. But the word of God is clear that life begins at the moment of conception. And so in the womb, from the moment that that God knits a child's soul together, we are dealing with a human being made in the image of God, not just a random assortment of cells. And so abortion is murder. It is the unlawful taking of human life forbidden in the sixth word. We even see God's love and concern for, for the unborn in the, the next chapter over, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 25. God tells Israel that, that even if a child in the womb is accidentally killed, it is a capital offense. And the early church understood that the Bible clearly taught this. Uh, there's a second century document called the Didache, and it tells us many things about what the early church believed. And in this document, we read these words. We find, uh, we find this, you shall not abort a child or commit infanticide. So even believers, just a generation removed from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, they understood the Bible's clear teaching on abortion. The early church also understood the Bible's plain teaching about uh, suicide. St. Augustine put it this way. He says that God's command, you shall not kill, is to be taken as forbidding forbidding self-destruction, especially as it does not add your neighbor, as it does when it forbids false witness. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Today we see in countries like Canada, for example, we see an increasing appetite for medically assisted suicide. And the Bible is, is very clear on this, that taking your own life, that regardless of the circumstances, is a violation of God's law. And there are a number of other implications of this sixth commandment that we could parse out, but I want you to remember this. God is the author of life. And every human being at every stage of life, from the womb to the tomb, 
has inherent value and worth and dignity because they are made in the image of God. We also need to consider what Jesus says about the sixth word. In Matthew chapter five, Jesus gets to the heart of the law of God. Jesus tells us that anger is a form of murder. That, that, that when we get angry at someone, we, if we mutter threats against them under our breath, we actually kill them in our heart. And this is important for us to remember because the law of God, as Jesus interprets it, is all about the heart. And this is why the gospel is so amazing because when we look at our own hearts, when we examine our own thoughts, our motives, and our intentions, we see how guilty we are and how much we need God's grace. We may not commit cold-blooded murder, but Jesus tells us that we commit murder in our hearts every day. As we read in 1 John chapter 5, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. One time a rabbi was having a conversation with a, a renowned theologian and the rabbi said to the theologian something along the lines of, uh, you know, the nice thing about Judaism is that you only transgress God's law if, uh, in your actions. You know, if it's all about the heart, you could never keep God's law. Well, brothers and sisters, that's exactly the point. That's exactly the point of God's law. It drives us to Christ because it exposes our need for him. It exposes our inadequacy and our attempts at our attempts to keep God's law. When we get angry at a driver when they cut us off in traffic, we commit murder. When we get angry at our children, uh, if they embarrass us in public, we commit murder in our hearts. When we get angry when our boss scolds us for not meeting deadlines, we commit murder in our hearts. And so we find, according to the words of our Lord, that, that we are constantly breaking God's law. We break the sixth commandment every single day. And rather than become discouraged, brothers and sisters, we must look to Christ because we can rest in his finished work knowing that he kept the law perfectly and that if we believe in him, his righteousness becomes ours. When we appear before the judgment seat of God on the last day, our, our only claim is this. Christ kept the law perfectly for me and I trust in his finished work. And yet even though Christ kept the law perfectly on our behalf, that doesn't mean that we go on living in sin. No, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans chapter six, he says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who died to sin live in it? 
Friends, new life in Christ means both our justification and our sanctification. Christ has satisfied the demands of the law for us. We are justified. We are pronounced righteous in Christ. But we are also sanctified. And we will continue to grow in grace and obey God's law because Christ dwells in us. Well, let's secondly try to answer this question. What is it that God requires of us in the sixth word? What is it that God requires of us? The answer is this, that God requires that we not only seek to preserve life, but that we seek the welfare of the living. In other words, God requires that we love our neighbor and seek their good because they bear the image of the triune God. Even the most difficult person that you could possibly imagine, we are called to demonstrate the love of Christ to them because they are image bearers. The Heidelberg Catechism has a great way of capturing this. It, it, it has a question and answer, and it asks this. Is it enough, then, if we do not kill our neighbor in any of these ways? And, and here's the answer. It says, no. For when God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he requires us to love our neighbor as ourselves, to show patience, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness toward him, to prevent injury to him as much as we can, and also to do good to our enemies. You see, the sixth commandment requires that we treat one another with dignity, with love, and with respect. And we don't always do a great job of this, especially within the Christian church. We often speak ill of one another. We, we often speak past one another in conversation rather than listening to one another in love. Our speech is not always gracious. And we would do well to, to heed the proverb that reminds us that, that in the tongue there is the power of life and death. We must remember the example of Jesus that Paul urges us to consider in Philippians 2 in in loving our neighbor and remembering that life is sacred. When Paul urges us to have the mind of Christ in humility to count others more significant than yourself. The sixth word also requires that we show kindness, love, and charity not just to one another within the church but to our enemies, to those outside the confines of the visible church. We live in such a polarized world and we often only think in terms of us versus them. And the Bible certainly does distinguish between a believer and unbeliever, between the elect and the reprobate, And the Bible provides us with wisdom concerning how we engage the world and yet not become of it. 
But we can quickly develop within the church an unbiblical view of us versus them. In our hearts and minds, we, we can begin to dehumanize our enemies, to strip them of the image of God. We can dehumanize those who are enslaved to sin. And the heart of Christ should instead compel us to pray for our enemies that they would turn and repent. And we must recognize that that even our enemies bear the divine imprint, the divine imprint of their Lord and Creator. And in obeying God in this way, is this not a picture of the cross? Is this not what Christ chiefly displays for us in his death upon a cross? As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, even as we were once enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, Christ ultimately models for us what it means to obey God in this command, what it means to love our enemies because he laid down his life for those who rejected him. Martin Luther also reminds us that God requires in the sixth commandment that we honor life because it is sacred and he reminds us that that means caring for the poor, caring for the needy, caring for the the outcast, the afflicted, the downtrodden. And he reminds us of Jesus' words. He says, he reminds us when Jesus says, as you have done to the least of these, so you have done to me. When we feed the starving, when we clothe the naked, when we care for those who are sick, or those who are in prison, when we care for needy image bearers made to reflect the glory of God. Jesus tells us in Matthew 25 that as we care for them, so we care for God. And these moments of showing mercy are often a way in which God draws sinners to himself. When we experience undeserved grace and favor, uh, it confounds the world. It confounds the world because the world lives in an economy of tit for tat. The world operates on a system of you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. But acts of sheer undeserved mercy that restore human dignity those acts point to the very nature of God's free gift of grace, freely offered to you in the gospel. And this is why as disciples of Jesus we are called to love in word and in deed. Our care for neighbor, our care for human life, it, it, it is a testament to the heavenly care of our Father. But ultimately, the sixth word requires that we are concerned with the eternal life of every man and woman, every boy and girl. Yes, God's law teaches us to hold an incredibly high regard 
for human life both here and now. That's absolutely present throughout the scriptures. Our human life here on earth, however brief and uncertain, it is of sacred value. And yet when we really think about it, when we really think about it, to to be pro-life is to be concerned for the life which is to come. We will live forever, ever. We will either live in everlasting glory or in everlasting judgment. And so to have concern for human life is to, is to behold every human being with a sense of urgency, urging them to forsake the path that leads to destruction and instead find life eternal. In the biblical sense, if we are pro-life, we, we want to see people have everlasting life. And Jesus says that this life, in John 17, verse 3, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is knowing God. Eternal life is knowing God. And the Bible says that God truly longs for the salvation of all, that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. So we must pray that God would give us eyes to see the ripe harvest, that God would give us eyes to see the harvest of souls, to win men and women, boys and girls, to the kingdom of God. We must pray earnestly for the salvation of our world and and share with them the hope, the life that now indwells us. We must pray that that those in our world, those who, who live in our communities, would become partakers of the divine life and find everlasting life. Well, lastly, how is it that Christ fulfills the sixth word? Well, Christ's entire life and ministry really incarnates the command, you shall not murder. As one commentator writes, Christ doesn't assault God's image, but restores it. He doesn't wound, but heals. He doesn't take life, but gives it abundantly. He doesn't oppress, but liberates. His words, even his harshest ones, are words of life. He uses the sword of his tongue to defend the weak and to call the wicked to a repentance that leads to life. And so at every turn in the gospel accounts, we find time and time again the heart of Christ, the compassion of our Lord, the love that overflows and seeks to restore the dignity of human life, that seeks to reach out to those who are outcasts, those who are downtrodden. And I love that we see in the gospels Jesus is concerned both for the spiritual needs of men and women made in his image, but also their physical needs. And in doing so, God, Christ fulfills 
the sixth commandment by seeking to preserve life, by seeking uh, to look to the welfare of the living. We see this reality in Luke's recounting of Jesus in the Gerasene demoniac in Luke chapter eight. We find just a wonderful portrait of Jesus bringing spiritual and physical renewal. So Jesus finds a man who has many demons. In the text it says the demons identify as legion. And Jesus finds this man naked. He finds a man in spiritual poverty but also physical poverty. And Jesus casts out the legion of demons. He gives spiritual newness of life. And then we find this little detail in verse 35, that when they came and found the man sitting at the feet of Jesus, he was clothed and in his right mind. And notice that, they they find the man clothed, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Luke doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell us how this man is suddenly clothed, but, but the inference is there. The inference is there that, that Jesus seeks to preserve not only the spiritual life of this man, but the physical life. He miraculously provides clothing. Our Lord not only provides this man with righteous robes that lead to everlasting life, but gives this man the robes of daily bread. And what an important picture this is of the Christian life. Because in Christ, in Christ, our dirty garments of sin and death are removed. And we are cleansed and we receive the righteous garments of Christ. And God provides our daily bread and we entrust our earthly lives to him, knowing that even as he cares for the birds of the air, even as he dresses the the grass of the field, how much more will he care for us and all that we need? So Christ cares, brothers and sisters, for both your spiritual life and your physical life. He is the Lord and giver of life. He is the sustainer of all things and he will see it to the end. And ultimately, Christ willingly subjects himself to murderers. He subjects himself to violators of God's law. And he does so in perfect submission to the will of God. Because in the giving of his own life, when he offers his very life for us on the cross, he secures for us true life, everlasting life for God's elect. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And this world promises us life, but it leaves us thirsty. And Jesus alone can quench our thirst. He gives us the water that wells up to eternal life. And so we must surrender, surrender our life Surrender our lives to Christ. It's not an easy calling. 
It's a hard one. But we are called to lay down our life and in doing so, participate in the divine life. As those who are made in the image of God, you were created to commune with the triune God. Your life is sacred. Your life is precious. Your life has value. Your life is of significance. Why? Because you are made in the image of your creator. And God welcomes you with open arms if you rest and receive him. He welcomes you into the life of his son. Let's pray together. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask this evening that you would grant us grace to die to ourselves, that we would grow more and more like Christ. And, oh, Lord, give each of us a concern for the well-being of our neighbor. Give us a holy concern for the sanctity of human life. Oh, Lord, grant that our world would see that life is precious that life is a gift from you. Lord, help us to love our fellow image bearer and to seek to restore dignity to the outcast. We pray that you would use us as instruments of mercy to display your grace in our love for our fellow man. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.